Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your co-host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. This season of Club Book looks and sounds a little different than our previous seasons. Due to COVID-19, we are bringing seasons to you virtually instead of our traditional live events hosted in libraries around the Twin Cities Metro. Our format will be a little different too. Events this season will consist of facilitated author discussions by some really great guest hosts. And will also include a Q&A section with questions submitted by our virtual audience. With that, I'll turn it over to our host for this evening's event. Enjoy. Welcome to Club Book with Maggie O'Farrell, the kickoff event in this spring's exciting Club Book lineup. I'm fiction writer Sheila O'Connor, and I will be the host for this event. Before I introduce today's guests properly, allow me a moment to tell you a bit more about the unique series that is bringing her to us. Club Book is a program of MELSA, the Metropolitan Library Service Agency, made possible through Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund and coordinated by Library Strategies, part of the Friends of the St. Paul Public Library. Ramsey County Library is the co-organizer of today's event. Thanks also to partnering bookseller Red Balloon Bookshop. Now for our featured event. Internationally acclaimed British writer Maggie O'Farrell has authored eight best-selling novels. Readers and critics praise her demonstrated mastery at depicting strained relationships, skewed family loyalties, and the just reachable light at the end of the tunnel, in the words of our own Star Tribune. Standouts include her Betty Trask award-winning debut after you'd gone, Somerset Mom award-winning The Distance Between Us, and Costa Novel award-winning The Hand That First Held Mine. O'Farrell also penned a poignant I Am, I Am memoir about the series of near-death experiences that have punctuated and in some ways shaped her life. Her latest entry into this literary canon is a work of historical fiction. Hamnet explores the domestic life of William Shakespeare and his wife, Anne Hathaway, and how the untimely death of the couple's only son may have inspired one of the bard's greatest plays. To quote NPR, Hamnet vividly captures the life-changing intensity of maternity in its myriad stages, from the pain of childbirth to the unassuageable grief of loss. After a short talk by our guest and some initial questions from me, we'll have time for an audience Q&A. Simply drop your questions in the comments thread here on Facebook and our tech manager will route them to me. If you'd prefer to contribute a question a bit more anonymously, you can also send a private message to Club Book here on Facebook or send an email to clubbookmin, that's clubbookmn at gmail.com. So welcome and welcome, Maggie. I'm so thrilled to be here in conversation with you. It's a real, just really an honor. And I wondered if you would begin by just sharing a passage of your beautiful book with us so that everyone in the audience can hear it and hear it in your voice. Oh, thank you so much, Sheila. It was a very nice introduction. And it's so nice to be here. I know there might be some people listening who, um, I was supposed to be doing this last year, but then as we all know, COVID sometimes gets in the way. So <laughs> I'm very pleased to be on the other side of that and here now. Um, so I'm going to read a short passage from the beginning of the book. And this is where Hamnet, who is age 11, he is, he's rushing about the house where he lives, uh, looking for someone to help him because his twin sister, Judith, has been taken unwell. 
and he has just come across his grandfather. The room is filled with gloom, coverings pulled over most of the windows. His grandfather is standing with his back towards him in a crouched position, fumbling with something, papers, a cloth bag, counters of some sort. There is a pitcher on the table and a cup. His grandfather's hand meanders through these objects, his head bent, his breath coming in wheezing bursts. Hamlet gives a polite cough. His grandfather wheels around, his face wild, furious, his arms flailing through the air as if warding off an assailant. Who's there, he cries. It's me, Hamnet. His grandfather sits down with a thud. You scared the wits out of me, boy, he cries. Whatever do you mean, creeping about like that? I'm sorry, Hamnet says. I was calling and calling, but no one answered. Judith is unwell, and they've gone out. His grandfather speaks over him with a curt flick of his wrist. What do you want with all those women, anyway? He seizes the neck of the pitcher and aims it towards the cup. The liquid ale, Hamlet thinks, slops out precipitously, some into the cup and some onto the papers on the table, causing his grandfather to curse, then dab at them with his sleeve. For the first time, it occurs to Hamlet that his grandfather might be drunk. Do you know where they've gone? Hamlet asks. Eh? his grandfather says, still mopping his papers. His anger at their spoiling seems to unsheath itself and stretch out from him like a rapier. Hamlet can feel the tip of it wander about the room seeking an opponent. Don't stand there gulping, his grandfather hisses. Help me. Hamlet shuffles forward a step, then another. He is wary, his father's words circling in his mind. Stay away from your grandfather when he's in one of his black humours. Be sure to stand clear of him. Stay well back, do you hear? His father had said this to him on his last visit, when they had been helping unload a cart from the tannery. John, his grandfather, had dropped a bundle of skins into the mud and, in a sudden fit of temper, had hurled a paring knife at the yard wall. His father had immediately pulled Hamlet back behind him, out of the way, but John had barged past them into the house without a word. His father had taken Hamlet's face in both of his hands, fingers curled in at the nape of his neck, his gaze steady and searching. He'll not touch your sisters, but it's you I worry for, he had muttered, his brow puckering. You know the humour I mean, don't you? Hamlet had nodded, but wanted the moment to be prolonged for his father to keep holding his head like that. It gave him a sensation of lightness and safety, of being entirely known and treasured. Swear to me, his father had said, as they stood in the yard, his voice hoarse. Swear it. I need to know you'll be safe, and I'm not here to see to it. Hamlet believes he is keeping his word. He is well back. He is at the other side of the fireplace. His grandfather couldn't reach him here, even if he tried. His grandfather is draining his cup with one hand and shaking the drops off a sheet of paper with the other. Take this, he orders, holding out the page. Hamlet bends forward, not moving his feet, and takes it with the very tips of his fingers. His grandfather's eyes are slitted, watchful. His tongue pokes out the side of his mouth. He sits in his chair, hunched, an old, sad toad on a stone. And this, his grandfather holds out another paper. Hamlet bends forward in the same way, keeping the necessary distance. He thinks of his father, how he would be proud of him, how he would be pleased. But quick as a fox, his grandfather makes a lunge. Everything happens so fast that afterwards Hamlet won't be sure in what sequence it all occurred. The page swings to the floor between them. His grandfather's hand seizes him by the wrist then the elbow, hauling him forwards into the gap, the necessary space his father had told him to observe, and then his other hand, which still holds the cup, is coming up fast. Hamlet is aware of streaks in his vision, red, orange, the colours of fire streaming in from the corner of his eye before he feels the pain. It is a sharp, clubbed, jabbing pain. The rim of the cup has struck him just below the eyebrow. That'll teach you, his grandfather is saying, in a calm voice, to creep up on people. Thank you. Oh my God. <laughs> Just and what a joy to hear you read that and, and to remember how I felt when I had first come upon that passage and that scene with that really frightening grandfather and then the absence of the father who's offered the warning and the way that that, you know, casts a shadow over everything that's to come in the book. So as a way of beginning, and we have so much to talk about 
I wonder if you could talk a bit about when and how this novel began for you and what called you to this subject? Well, I don't know how it is for you, Sheila, but I sometimes find it hard to put my finger on when books begin or how they begin or where they begin. Often there's something like the Hamlet which creeps up on you, I think. Mm -hmm. But I can remember there were two very clear um, moments for me in the inception of this book. And one was about, it's funny, I was looking back in one of my notebooks recently and I found an entry, this is my kind of ideas notebook, I don't know if you have one of these here, but I just scribbled down ideas or titles or images or anything, I just rub, it, rub them down, and I had written in 2014 um, a novel about Shakespeare's son, Hamlet, mm. and at some later date I'd gone back to it and I'd put square buckets around it, obviously thinking that's an idea I should have done too, um, but actually it's something that really stopped me writing it, well there were several things that stopped me writing it actually, one of them, one of the thoughts was you know, who writes a novel about Shakespeare, that sounds like an insanity. Um, but also I have a kind of odd superstition, or I did have an odd superstition that about my own children, you know, I have a son and two daughters as the Shakespeare's did, although they're actually in a slightly different order. My son is the eldest. And I, I found that I couldn't write the book until my own son was past the age of 11. It just, I mean, not that I, you know, obviously there's not a huge risk of my son contracting the Black Death, but you never know, you can't be too careful. And I knew that if I was to write it, I would be, you know, I, I was gonna to have to put myself in the mind frame or inside the skin of a woman who is forced to sit at her son's bedside and watch him die. I mean, we can be pretty sure that that's what his mother would have had to do. Um, and I just knew that I couldn't do that until my son was safely past that age. He's now a six foot 18 year old. So <laughs> luckily he didn't get struck down. So there was that, and I think that put me up. I actually wrote, uh, I've written three books instead of writing Hamlet. When I finished writing my memoir, um, I am, I am, I am, I remember sort of sitting myself down in a sense and looking myself in the eye and saying, you know, either you've got to write this book or you've just got to forget about it. You know, you can't keep circling around the idea and buying more, yet more and more books about Shakespeare and <laughs> life in Tudor England. You know, you've either got to do it or forget about it. But actually, I think, you know, in some ways, I think the book has a an earlier inception as well as an earlier seed because I I studied the play Hamlet when, for my Scottish hires when I was 16 going on 17 and I really fell for the play in a big way you know I think Hamlet as a character does appeal to a certain type of adolescent which I certainly was you know someone slightly gloomy wears a lot of black um and I think anyway he kind of he felt like someone related to me I really really loved the play. I absolutely loved every second of it, every line of it. I loved the um, the conundrums that Hamlet goes through. And, you know, it's clearly, he's clearly an adolescent, I think, looking at it now as a much older woman and as a parent, he seems to me, there's an awful lot of scholarly debate about how old is Hamlet, you know, is he, you, could, you know, people have kind of aged him from the age of about 14 to 30, you know, he's a student, we know that, but, it, you know, it's a bit elastic. There's a lot of debate about it. But to me, he's very clearly about 15, if I look at my own children, look at their kind of developmental stages, um, you know, he's someone who has been dragged very suddenly into the adult world and he's really not ready for it. You know, his father's died, his mother's remarried, somebody's taken his father's throne, you know, his uncle has taken his father's throne. So this suddenly his whole world has crumbled and he's not ready to be an adult. You know, he's indecisive, he's frozen. Um, anyway, so I do remember I studied and had a really brilliant English teacher at high school. He was incredible. He's one of those teachers who really changed the way you saw the world and literature and what what words were capable of. So I was incredibly lucky to be taught by him. And he said in passing one day when we were studying the play that Shakespeare had had a son who was had been called Hamnet and he had died at the age of 11, about four years before we think he wrote the play Hamlet. And I remember, you know, sitting in my very cold Scottish classroom and being really thunderstruck by this and looking down at the, you know, the cover of my school issue, Hamlet, and putting my finger over the L and taking it off again and thinking, well, it's the same name. You know, what does that mean? What does it mean? And it's only when I, when I went to university, I studied English literature and it was only then really that I got the sense or I began to realise that Shakespeare is a very mysterious person you know he is a very shadowy figure and there's a kind of odd imbalance with him because we have an enormous we have the enormous wealth of his work you know his plays and his poetry I should say no thanks to him I mean he did publish the poetry in his lifetime but he didn't ever 
publish his plays. He only had them because his two friends and colleagues after Shakespeare had died, gathered together all the manuscripts and put together the first folios. It's only that we have them to thank for the fact that we have his plays. So we have this enormous amount of work, but on the other hand, we know incredibly little about him, you know, despite the best efforts of all the world's most incredible and intelligent Shakespearean scholars. He, Shakespeare remains very mysterious. He has left a very scant paper trail, but it's always seemed to me that, um, you know, in calling his play, that probably his most famous play, it's certainly my favourite play, and the character, you know, the, the protagonist and also the ghost after, given it the, basically the same name as his son, because in the 16th century spelling was a lot less stable and is, it is the same name. There are parish records where mm -hmm. Hamlet and Hamlets are completely interchangeable. So giving this play and this protagonist and this ghost his dead son's name is an enormously significant act. Um, you know, and, he, and in that moment, he becomes briefly visible to us as a as a human, as a as a as a grieving father, not as a literary icon, this behemoth of brilliance. Um, and that has always really intrigued me. And I've always felt that Hamlet, the boy, has never been given his due. You know, he's never been he's never been given his significance. There are so many people who've never heard of Hamlet. You know, I went around some of my friends who, like me, have got degrees in English literature, and I said, do you know what Shakespeare's children were called? And they all said, no, no, the faintest idea. And some of them, when I was talking about writing the book, I remember so, I said, a couple of them said to me, when I said, well, actually, one of them's called Hamlet, one of them said to me, you can't make that up, you know, you, you can't go around writing a novel making up the fact that Shakespeare had a son called Hamlet. And I said, no, no he did. <laughs> I promise you, you can see it. It's in the parish records I'm not making up. So I've always felt that he's been... Hamlet the boy has just been consigned to this literary footnote that nobody has ever given him his due and given him his significance, not only in kind of literary terms, you know, I don't think without him we would have Hamlet and I don't think we would have Twelfth Night, but also in biographical terms, you know, it's funny when you read these huge, massive 500 tomes of Shakespeare biographies, which are brilliant, I'm not criticising them, they're incredible works of genius, but Hamlet is lucky if he gets maybe two mentions, you know, people mention that he was born and they mention that he died, and I've actually read very respected scholars saying things like, you know, it's impossible to know whether or not Shakespeare grieved his son when he died. <laughs> I just think, what are you talking about? He was 11. You know, how could he not have been grieved? How could he not have been loved? And the idea that, you know, often his Hamlet's death is wrapped up in statistics about child mortality in Elizabethan England, almost as if the, the sort of unspoken implication is that it wasn't really that big of a deal that he died because, you know, one in five children, unfortunately, didn't make it past infancy but you know I just have always refused to believe that at any point in history anywhere in the world it's anything less than catastrophic if you lose a child mm -hmm. you know no matter how common it is no matter what age that child is it's always you know must skewer you through the absolute innards um so that's sorry that's an incredibly long answer to your question yeah <laughs> well, I was thinking you know it, I think it's difficult for people to believe that so many books begin with what we don't know, not what we do know. You know, mm -hmm. that we're drawn into writing a novel by something we can't answer, something we'll never be able to have a definitive answer on, something we don't understand, something that pulls us forward that we're trying to make sense of. Like he had lost this child and what way did that, you know, um, shape the, the famous play? And I wondered if you could just talk a bit about sort of the pleasures of entering a deep mystery when you're writing a novel, this novel in particular, maybe the space of what's the space that not knowing grants you. Mm. Well, I've always been slightly, um, I've never felt that, that very kind of basic tenet of creative writing is that you write what you know. I've never felt that that really relates to any thing I write, I don't know how, what about, I don't know about you, Sheila, but, um, you know, I've always thought, well, actually, I don't, I don't really write what I know. I, I wouldn't want to write what I know because it would, it would be a bit boring. <laughs> I mean, it'd be boring for me, actually, probably it would be boring. And I think if it's boring for me, it's probably boring for other people to read it. Because in a sense, you know, I've always felt that my life is, you know, my actual, my physical, you know, my life um, is, is a sort of alternative existence. You know, my writing is an alternative existence to my actual life. And, you know, I would hate to repeat or recycle stuff that's happened to me in a novel. I mean, I know that some people do it and they do it brilliantly and I'm not, I'm not at all criticizing that kind of writing. But for me, I've always found the most interesting thing or the most stimulating thing to write about 
is what you don't like you're saying what you don't know you know in a sense i i think i write what i don't know because i write in a sense that writing a novel sometimes is an act of trying to reach an understanding about something and certainly that was the case with hamlet and with other books that i wrote i wrote a book um called the vanishing act of esme lennox a long time ago which was about young women who were incarcerated or often for life in institutions in britain um, and ireland uh, and that i couldn't understand that i thought well, how did this happen how did these people get forgotten about how did families just you know lock their daughters away so in a sense writing the novel was a a sort of groping towards an understanding for me and in this but i think in this was hamlet i think my override the sort of engine behind the book for me was to to give this boy a voice and a presence because i feel he's been you know like i said he's been forgotten about he's been overlooked for so long um and, and i wanted to to ask people in a sense or ask readers to you know forget everything they think they know about shakespeare and open themselves up to looking at him as a human being and looking, you know, I mean, obviously there's a very strong reason why, uh, <laughs> very valid reasons why biographies and other novels and other films or whatever about Shakespeare have focused on his life in London. You know, obviously I do realise that that's where, <laughs> that's where the stories are, you know, that's where he, he created and wrote and put on his plays. But in a sense, it's always seemed to me that the biggest, um, well, the greatest drama of his life has happened, happened off stage and that's with the death of his son in, in Stratford. So in a way, I wanted to uh, breathe life into this very short life of Hamlet and to say, put him centre stage and say, you know, this child was important. He was significant. He was loved. He was grieved. And I know that every book, I, I assume even for you, offers obstacles and challenges that you, <laughs> you didn't anticipate having written all these books up until this moment and they're not doing you any good suddenly because you're up against something new in this book. I wondered if you remember or could talk about some early obstacles or challenges you faced in writing this particular book. Well, I think, yeah, I mean, I would definitely agree that I think all books have their every book that you write has its own joys and its own challenges. I think it's a bit like having children. You know, I remember when I had my, my son. Yes. <laughs> you, know, you kind of go through the early stage and you think, okay, I, I know about babies now. I can do this again. Yeah, this is fine. And then you have baby number two and you think, oh my God, this is a completely different person. <laughs> it's a totally different baby and I've got everything different. I've got to learn it all again. And I do think novels are a bit the same. You know, you write one and you think, okay, I can do novels. And then you start doing something else and you think, oh God, you know, this is a whole different ball game. And I agree. But, you know, there's a joy of it. I think with every book, anyway, I try to, try to do something different. I try to set myself a kind of challenge, whether it's technical or thematic or um, lexical or whatever. Um, and, you know, you have a steep learning curve with each book and you grapple with this whatever it is you're trying to learn and then at the end of it you think okay I think I, I sort of got it I pinned it down but now I want to use those tools to to write the next one you know I think there's always something that spurs you on but certainly with this one I think oh, I don't know there were, <laughs> there were many obstacles first of all there was no superstition about my son uh going past the age of 11 yes, yes. <laughs> and also That's I mean I had <laughs> I had a I'd say I had a huge amount of vertigo writing about Shakespeare because mm -hmm. you just think, well, who does that? You know, who writes a novel about Shakespeare? Um, so that, yes, that was a huge one. And also writing about, you know, I mean, I'd written a, I'd written a book which, you know, went as far back as the 1920s um, in India, but I'd never, you know, I'd never ever thought I was going to write a book about the 16th century. And that was kind of quite a bit nerve wracking because I thought I have no idea, you know, about how you recreate that and how you, you know, I mean, I, you know, and I, but I think what I, the way I got around that in particular was I just thought I'm not going to think about this as a historical novel, capital H, capital N. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to approach it as I would any other novel. I'm just going to think of it in those terms. And actually, you know, I discovered that doing, I mean, research is a, <laughs> it's, a it's great. I, I love it. You know, I absolutely loved going to the library and rooting about in books and finding you know, what undergarments were made of in, the, in Tudor times or what, you know, the windows look like and all that stuff. And the thing about research is what I realise is that, you know, you need to know so much You've, in order to, you know, I don't know, write a scene in a Elizabethan parlour. You need to know an incredible amount. You need to feel confident about <clears throat> writing it properly. You need to know what the floors are made of. You need to know what their clothes look like and feel like. You need to know how their hair looks. You need to know what's sitting on the table, you know, I mean, 
you have to know that. But actually, what you, when it comes down to it, when you're writing the scene, you have to make sure that 98% of that research does not appear in your manuscript, because otherwise you, it sounds as though you're just writing a PhD about domestic life in, in the English in an English market town. Um, because I really I really find historical novels that are very heavy with their sense of history, or that the writer is determined to tell you that he or she has done their homework. And the research like, it's, <laughs> it's so leaden, isn't it? And it's so annoying and distracting when you know, you're reading something and it says she picked up the phone, which was made of Bakelite, an early form of plastic. Think, oh, my God, this is, <laughs> this is so distracting. So I think I really wanted to write a kind of historical novel that wears its history really lightly. So you, it, and it's just so because you do so much research, but actually only, you know, a tiny, tiny fraction of that, only the tip of the iceberg of that should show in a novel. Um, so that was that was that was a kind of I mean, it was a joy. I really enjoyed doing it. And the, the William Shakespeare thing was nerve-wracking, but I got around a lot of that by not using his name in in the manuscripts at all. I complete, I don't name him, which is good because otherwise I was writing. You know, I'd be sitting at my desk and I would be writing a scene and I'd be immersed in the kind of idea of it, and then I would have to write something like <laughs> William Shakespeare sat down and had breakfast, and I think, oh God, you know, I feel like an Egypt. Uh, so I just, I kind of got around that just by thinking, I'm just not going to name him at all, because it was distracting for me, and I thought, well, if I'm distracted by it, my readers are going to be distracted by it, and, you know, because in a sense, I wanted people not to think of him as William Shakespeare, the icon, but I wanted to think of him as the person before he was William Shakespeare, in a sense. So did you immerse yourself in the research prior to even beginning the dream of the book, or did you... Did you begin the dream of the story and then have to figure things out as you went? Do you know what I'm asking? Like, yeah, did, you, no, sure. did you dive into it? I know that like Edward P. Jones, who wrote the beautiful novel, The Known World, had said once that he had had books for 10 years. You know, he bought all these books and his apartment was filled with them, but he never read them. And they were going to be... Uh, about what became the subject of the known world, you know, and then he decided to just write it, you know, and, yeah. and just start writing it. And I know that it can be easy in a historical novel to get so bogged down in the front end research that the heart of the book, which is the dream of the characters living a life, you know, yeah. can get lost. And um, I just wondered how how was that balance for you in the creative process? Well, I think even in general, when I'm you know even when I'm writing a contemporary set novel, mm -hmm. I, I'm not much of a planner. I don't know about you, too. I don't know if you're one of those writers. No. I've heard other people talk about how they make enormous. <laughs> I don't plan a thing. <laughs> yeah, no, me too. I'm not a planner either in fiction or in life, unfortunately. Mm. <laughs> I wish I was. Um, you know, I have I have heard writers talk about how they don't even put you know, finger to keyboard until they've planned every single chapter. And I'm <clears throat> much more a fly by the seat of my pants person. And so when I say it was a kind of mixture of both, I did, before I began writing, I did read biographies and I read books mm -hmm. about, about the area and just to kind of get a feel for it and think, do I want to do this? But actually, you know, as you know yourself, you just have to get the words down on paper and you know, there's, <laughs> you can do 10 years of research and it, and it could actually hinder you. So I did do a bit and it's, but it sense, you know, it's only, I often think that writing a novel is very like driving along a road at night. You know, you, you don't, you can't navigate it until you're actually there, until you're on the road and your headlights, you know, you can only see so a couple of feet in front of you and that's just, you only know where the next curve is and you just have to take it and, hope for the best, you know, you don't, you can't travel along that road, you can't mentally do it, you have to be on the road to do it, so you've got to be writing to find out what it is you need to know and where you're going next. So in a sense I did a little bit of research and then I started writing and it's only in the act of writing the book when you find out what it is you don't know, you know, what it is you don't need. And in fact, you know, I wrote, when I wrote the first page, I <laughs> wrote the scene about, you know, I put Hamlet in, he's coming down the stairs, and, I and did it be, did the book begin for you there, Maggie, with what is actually the opening scene? Well, no, because I did have a couple of attempts at it before when I was right when I um, in between writing the three books I wrote instead of Hamlet. <laughs> yeah, I did have a couple of stabs at it, and I had about maybe fifteen twenty thousand words, 
Uh-huh. And I came to actually thinking I really had to have a shot, proper shot at this book. I looked at it all and I thought, no, this is all wrong. I've started the book at the wrong point in the story. Um, you know, so I completely scrapped that, those 20,000 words. And I started again and I thought I need to start with him. I need to start with the boy. So okay. I did. I'm just saying, I got, I did write it and I got down as far. So that's the first opening page. And I wrote it and I wrote it. I thought, yes, this is working. I quite like this. And I got as far as here. Uh-huh. And it says he falls on the floor. And I lifted my hands from the keyboard and I thought, what's the floor made of? <laughs> you know, is, it, is it clay? Is it rusted? Has it got carpet? And I thought, I have literally no idea. You know, because uh-huh. you have to, you describe a boy falling on the floor and you think, well, how, how hard does he hurt himself? You know, uh-huh. <laughs> if it's a carpet, not much, but if it's flags, it might be quite sore. And, <laughs> you know, and I, I had a look in the internet and I looked in all my books and I could not find anywhere what floors in a small thatched house in 16th century Stratham would have been made from. I could find about palaces, I could find about, you know, churches, but not for, so I thought, well, I, you know, I got to paragraph two and I thought I had to go to Stratford and find out, which is what I did. I mean, I did write a bit more to be fair, but you know, it, it is at that point, it's like what I was saying about being on the road. You've got to be on the road to find out what it is you need to know. Right, and do you uh, do you let go of all kinds of pages, even as you're working on this? I just have oh to assume God. you yes. do. Yeah, no, I, I do, mean, I do. Aspiring <laughs> novelists don't want to believe that. They they really want to mm-hmm. think that you are so brilliant that you sat down and with a great deal of ease wrote this novel. You know, I can look at this yeah. and think, oh my God, what work she put into this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I should say, I mean, I don't know, you know, I should say that I love it. I love the work. And it is, mm-hmm. it is you know, it is hard, you know, I think novel writing, you have to have a lot of inspiration, you've got to have talent, but you've also got to have be a really bloody minded. And you've got to be uh, a perfectionist and you've got to be, you know, you've got it's hard work. <coughs> I just, the manuscript I've just finished, I, it's about, oh, how long is it? It's about four, five, four hundred pages long. And I was doing a final draft, you know, this is three years work and I got to the end of it and I thought, I need to cut 70 pages from this. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's a kind of, you get that sense of there's a sag in the middle and I thought, no, this is, and I really like it all. It's all, you know, I like, and I worked hard on this and, but it's got to go. So I have to go. So no, there's an awful lot. There's a, so much, yeah. There's a, but actually, you know, I went years ago, I went to, I used to go to a poetry workshop given by an Irish American poet called Michael Donaghy. And he gave me some very brilliant advice. He said, he was talking about poems, but I think it applies to all forms of, probably all forms of creative endeavor, but certainly to novels. And he said that when you're writing a poem, you've got to remember that there's an awful lot of scaffolding. You know, you need all this scaffolding. And in the middle, you write, you know, you build this beautiful structure of your poem, but what you've got to remember at the end is to take down the scaffolding so that everyone can see your beautiful poem or your beautiful novel. And I think it's, it is, you know, there's an awful lot of scaffolding, um, but it has to go because you don't want it to, to uh, obscure your beautiful building. Right, I mean, even as I read the book, I could sense just how much pleasure there must have been in the work of it, you know, because there's there's such a strong heart that moves through this book. It's just, I, I don't have the language for it, but it's it literally is a beating heart that just moves the book forward from the opening to the end. And the heart is still beating when you get to those beautiful final lines. So we do have questions coming in and I'm going to give the audience a chance to ask some questions and then come back to mine maybe if there's still time. Um, What, okay, someone is asking what your research was like, what books you read and recommend plus any um, locales you journeyed to. Um, well, I would say that some of the research, the research is kind of split um, down the middle, and a lot of it obviously was library based. Um, there are, you know, I hardly need to say that there are hardly any shortage of books about Shakespeare. Uh, there are a lot. You could spend the rest of your life reading about Shakespeare if you wanted, and lots of people do. So, uh, yes, there are no shortages. So, I read quite a lot of um, Shakespeare biographies, and I read, I went back to the plays. And I read, particularly Hamlet, obviously, I read that over and over again, trying to get the rhythm of the language and let the imagery of it and the world of it seep under my skin. Um, Because I was very sure, I knew always that I would never, (laughs) because obviously dialogue in a historical novel that's, you know, uh, set from the 16th century is always going to be a question, you know, I think you have to make a decision about it as a writer. 
are you going to write cod Shakespeare in dialogue <laughs> or are you going to write your own version? Are you going to write modern, you know, how, where do you draw the line here? And I, I had a very, very uh, firm line in the sand that I was never going to use the word Syrah or Prithee or good morrow or <laughs> anything like that. And I, you know, the idea, uh, the idea of me pretending to write Shakespeare and dialogue is so horrific and so presumptuous that I knew that that was never gonna happen. But what I did decide was that, so I would write it in contemporary grammar and syntax, but I would try to adhere, not only in dialogue actually, but also in the whole of the book, in the prose of the book to, um, to a kind of semantic accuracy. So, I tried never ever to use a word that didn't have the same meaning now as it did then. So I did the last couple of drafts of the book with the Oxford English Dictionary next to me, which as you know is a vast tome that I had to read with the magnifying glass. And there were lots of words that didn't make it. So actually one of the drafts I had a description of somebody um, folding her dress into concertina folds. And I realised that actually concertinas weren't invented to the 19th century, so that had to go. <laughs> and then actually as I was doing the final copy edit, I had used the word shambles to mean chaos you know it descended into a shambles but when I looked it up in the OED I discovered that shambles in the 16th century was a, a butchering term it meant to hack up a carcass uh, so that had to go as well <laughs> I had to think of something else so I tried to that was my own personal uh, rule that I imposed upon myself so yeah so there was an author that I read a lot of biographies lots of plays and I did read the OED slightly <laughs> obsessively and I um but some of it was a kind of physical research, so particularly for the character of Agnes. Um, she, in order for that, I found that I needed to do a bit of kind of physical work, a physical research in terms of I wanted to get my hands dirty. You know, I think this, obviously you can read, you can learn a huge amount from libraries and books and I would never dispute that, but there, there was something about that character in particular that I found that I needed to actually do something that she had done just to try and understand it. You know, the idea of the, the line between my life as a woman in as a mother or in you know the 21st century and her life in the 16th century is so enormous you know and it's a, it's a kind of huge cavern between my life and her life so i did do things i made uh, bread from a tudor recipe i planted my own elizabethan herb medicinal garden and I'm not, I'm not a very particularly good gardener, but I did, I wanted to get the seeds and I planted them in soil and I nurtured them and I watered them and I was upset when they died and I was pleased when they flourished. And I went on a course to learn how to make them into medicines. Mm. Um, because, you know, I think there's only, you know, you could read in the book, you know, they used comfrey for sore joints and you think, okay, that's interesting. And you can write comfrey slash sore joints in your notebook. But actually until you've got the comfrey leaves, that you've grown yourself and you've mashed them up and you've made them into a poultice and you've looked at and you've worked it out and you've tried them on your own skin you don't really understand it you don't really know what it's like to to do that and you can't write about it properly until you've actually literally got your hands dirty the most fun thing i did actually was i went to the scottish borders where i met a falconer and i learned to fly a kestrel and that's actually the most fun thing i've ever done in the name of work but you need to because actually i had already written the scene where Agnes flies her kestrel and I had <laughs> described it that she was holding out her falconer's glove and uh, I described a kestrel landing with a thud on her glove but when I learned to fly the kestrel I <laughs> realized pretty fast that kestrels are about the weight of a tiny kitten they're so light and they're so stealthy and they they land without you even realizing it there was one point where I was holding my glove out and I was looking the other way and then I turned around and there it was, <laughs> you know, it landed without me noticing they are so stealthy and they fly absolutely soundlessly, which of course is why they're such good predators. So I, yeah, so that's why, that's why I needed to do it. So there was a lot of uh, physical research as well. And it, that's interesting because she is so physically embodied as a character, Agnes. I mean, it's part of what I think of as her power on the page and her fierceness and the way that she exists wholly outside of his shadow. In this book, she is not in her husband's shadow at all. You know, she, she owns her power and her place in the story and her life. And it's fascinating to me that, and not surprising either, but impressive that you went so far with um, understanding physically what it meant to be her. But she's a very physical character. 
you know. I wondered a little bit, you know, I think in a sense of the book, you know, I've always felt that Hamnet, the boy, was overlooked, but actually I always felt that the woman we have been taught to call for, you know, a long time, Anne Hathaway, even though most of the, for most of her life her name was Shakespeare, uh, has just been vilified and criticised and put down. Well, no more. She is neither <laughs> overlooked nor, nor vilified any longer. I Good. Mean, I thought she's had yeah, such a blame her place. Yeah. <laughs> so I wanted to. I wanted her to be on the page. I wanted her to be a woman in her own right. I wanted to um, just fight back against all the criticism and vilification that she's had for so long. You know, we've been taught one single narrative about her that she was this ignorant peasant woman who lured this boy genius into marriage. Yeah. With her having the nerve of getting pregnant um and that also we've been taught that he hated her and that he ran away from london you know ran away to london to get away from her that he only left her his second best bed in his will and you know and all of that is nonsense i've never found a single shred of evidence for any of that and actually quite the opposite so i wanted to i wanted her i wanted to rewrite a whole version i wanted to ask readers to forget everything they think they know about anne hathaway and open themselves up to agnes shakespeare her father richard hathaway in his will, left her very generous. She he died before the year they got married, and he left her a very generous dowry. And in it, he refers to her as my daughter Agnes, and that was a lightning bolt moment for me because I thought, you know, on top of everything else, we've been calling her by the wrong name yes. <laughs> all the time. Uh, she's she's really such a powerful center to the novel, <clears throat> and and her pain at losing a child is also so beautifully executed. I have to go on now to the next question. Um, oh, which connects to this. Can you talk about how you arrived at the moving ending of Hamnet, which is horrible because all kinds of people probably <laughs> maybe haven't gotten to the end, but anyway, <laughs> in, in general, the moving ending, how did you arrive at it? Well, I, I always knew that it was going to end where it does. Uh, I, I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say that it ends at the Globe Theatre. Um, you always knew that. Yeah, I always knew that that's where it was going to end. And I knew it was going to end with Agnes seeing the first production of Hamlet. Um, you know, because it was one of the questions that always returned to me when I was thinking about this book and when I was writing this book was, how did she feel about it? How did she feel about her husband taking the name of their son and using it for his play. I mean, it's, you know, it's perfectly possible that she was thrilled that maybe it was, it felt like a fitting tribute, but it's equally possible that she was really angry. <laughs> I think I would have been, I don't know. I, I don't know how I would feel about it if my husband did that. I hope I never even had to think about it, but, um, so that was always, it was always at the back of my mind. And there's also quite a lot of debate, you know, there's so much debate about, his marriage and his relationship with her and there's a huge amount which scholars have uh, as part of her criticism her detractors have always said you know isn't it ironic that William Shakespeare's wife was probably illiterate and you know <laughs> and you know putting her down yet again and you know she probably was illiterate actually because what daughter of a sheep farmer would have been taught to read in you know mm -hmm. the mid-16th century where there would have been no purpose to it but you know, it doesn't even really need to be said that literacy does not necessarily equal stupidity. I, you know, I'm sure she had, you know, there are all kinds of different brands of intelligence and there is documentation that uh, shows that later in life, um, when they were living in the larger house in Stratford-upon-Avon, that she ran her own very successful malting business from the back of the house. They had a huge amount of land attached to it. You know, so just these tiny, tiny glimpses at her, I just thought, well, that doesn't sound like the bitter and angry illiterate wife, you know, left behind in Stratford. She was just getting on with this stuff and running her own business. Um, so, yeah, I just always found that. For it. But then I, then I thought, you know, and there's also people have speculated whether or not his daughters and his wife saw his plays. And it's not necessarily a given, you know, it took four days to reach London from Stratford. It was not an easy journey. There were no coaches or anything like that. You had to have either your own horse, uh, which took about three days, or you had to walk, which took four or five days. Um, so it's not necessarily a given that they saw his plays, but I just thought, well, you know, if he had written a play with their dead son's name, she probably would have made the effort to go and see it. And that, uh, that leads me to ask, did you, did you write that? 
final chapter before you actually arrived at it in the book? Like, did you write the book chapter by chapter, sort of? Do you proceed that way, or do you, did you write pieces of it, or? No, I mean, I don't. I'm, I don't necessarily adhere very strictly to writing from one, you know, the beginning of the book all the way through. Okay. I think there were part. I don't know. I often find. I think beginnings are really hard. I don't know if you find this, Sheila. I think beginnings. Yeah, I think what I wish somebody if I, I wish somebody told me when I was starting out, you know, you don't have to begin at the beginning. You can begin mm. in the middle. You can begin. <laughs> it took me a while to work that out because um, I think beginnings. There's an awful lot, so much riding on the beginning, and you've got to kind of set out your stall and establish your characters and locate yourself in time and space. And there's a lot of pressure. So actually, I think, and I think beginnings are the one of the parts of the book I often have to rewrite and rewrite. So I don't always start at the beginning. I can sometimes start a little bit of the way in, but I mean, I did mostly. I didn't. I didn't write the ending until I got there if you see what I mean. Yes, even though you knew it would it would have something to do with her seeing the play. But even the though I knew that and also I wanted to talk, I wanted to write about the play. I wanted to write about the play seen through the lens of Hamlet's death, you know, and because it doesn't take a psychiatrist to work out what Shakespeare is doing in Hamlet. You know, he in Hamlet the father is dead and he's a ghost who's also called Hamlet of course and the young boy is alive and the young boy is desperate to see the ghost of his father. You know, and it, <laughs> we can see what he's doing. He's taking his son's death on himself and he's giving his son life, you know, in the way he's bringing the son back to life with the play. Um, and so I wanted, you know, it's always always seemed to me that the play is a message from a father in one realm to a son and another, an unreachable son and another. And so I wanted to write about that aspect of the play. So I knew that would be the final chapter. So the chapter describing the path of the plague to England was brilliantly written. And yes, this is a question and yes, it was. And this to me is also one of the questions that I had. Um, what do you think of, well, this is how, how did you develop that section? But also, what do you now think of all the work you did around the plague in this book post, you know, not post COVID, but you wrote this before the pandemic, you know, and and it does have to do with a pandemic. And I also wondered if you would if you would perceive it any differently now, having actually been in one. Yeah, I mean, I finished the book in twenty nineteen. Um, so, and actually, and it's funny when that that chapter with the flea and tracing the path of the plague all the way. Yes. Stratford. Brilliant. Um, I actually it was one of those scenes that I didn't plan it at all it wasn't in my kind of vague uh, scheme for the book and it was only when I was actually writing the book that it occurred to me it was sort of on on the job in a way um, mm -hmm. and it was more sort of it was a more a sense of uh, I just felt as I was writing you know because the first half of the book takes place mostly in well it takes place mostly in one house in quite a small town and there was a point at which I was about a third of the way through or maybe, you know, coming up to half of the way through. And I suddenly, I got this kind of sense of claustrophobia about the manuscript. And I just thought, oh God, we need to kind of, I need to throw open this manuscript a bit and get this kind of, I, get, I need to get a breeze through it <laughs> in a way. And I thought, you know, and it's just seemed to me, and I don't know what it's like in the States because I know that the, I know that the Black Death didn't reach the States, I think until the 18th or maybe possibly 19th century, but Certainly, if you live in Britain or parts of Europe, it's or in a, if you live in a city, particularly in you know even where I live in Edinburgh, you're constantly walking over the history and the memory of those pandemics. You know the park, uh, you know a half a mile from my house where my kids learn to ride their bikes, have these kind of very little steep hills and dips, and all my kids learn to ride their bikes there and their scooters. Um, but those heaps and dips are plague burial grounds. Mm -hmm. um, I have a friend who lives not far from me here who has a plague gravestone in her garden. It's just there, you know, and, you know, particularly London. London, its actual very geography is defined by plague pits. You know, you can't go to the city of London um, and often you find these little tiny parks, you know, and these are really incredibly expensive land and they're built up to the skies everywhere, but you always find these little, and they're always slightly oddly shaped. And the reason why they're there is because you're not allowed to build on them because they are plague burial grounds. And even in the names of the streets, you know, Vinegar Alley and uh, Plague Close, there's all these, all these names, you know, so it defines our, our very, sort of, we have a very strong 
folkloric memory of it. It's very, and it's in, you know, the first nursery rhyme everybody in Britain and Ireland is taught is Ring a Ring of Roses, which a lot of people argue is about the plague. So it's something that's still very present and current in our memory. Um, so I wanted to, to write about that and to do justice to the scale of it. I mean, the scale of it is jaw dropping, you know, at one plague outbreak in Europe alone, a quarter of the world's population was killed. And that was in the 15th, maybe 14th, 15th century. So the numbers are absolutely jaw dropping. And it would have been at the forefront of every single Elizabethan mind. And Shakespeare's career itself would have been constantly interrupted by it. You know, every time there was a plague case in London, the very first thing the civic authorities did was to shut down the playhouses because, of course, you know, the original Globe Theatre had a capacity for 3,000 people. And of course, they were gathering in the middle of the day, often in the heat of the day in summer. You know, you can see why it was, would have been a, a well, bacterium hotspot, I suppose, in those days. So, you know, he would have been constantly, and if there was a, a minor outbreak, he would have had to close down. They would have closed down the Globe and he and the company would have gone on tour around London. But if it was a bad outbreak, he probably went home to Stratford, I imagine. Um, there is a story, perhaps apocryphal, that he wrote King Lear while he was in lockdown from the plague. I don't know if that's true, but it's a good story. Not a bad uh, pandemic output for him. <laughs> um, so I suppose I just, yeah, I just wanted to do justice to the scale of it and the horror of it. But it is strange because of course, I do have a strong memory of sitting in this room and I had lots of maps up um, uh, about Elizabethan plague routes or trade routes, because obviously it came along the trade routes and I had them up on my walls and there were kind of arrows coming all the way from uh, Asia and then via Europe and then to Italy and then round, <laughs> around the seas. And the really strange thing was that when, you know, two years ago, we were all watching it come closer and we were looking at these, uh, you know, infographics of the plague getting closer and then it reached Italy and then, you know, I mean, when since it reached Italy, I think everybody in Britain and Europe knew that it, it was only a matter of time until it reached them. But the strange thing was that all those infographics looked exactly like the Elizabethan playgroups diagrams that I still had still had on my wall. So it, it, was, it was odd. Yeah, it was very odd. But I think in a sense, I, I think it made me very grateful that we live in the modern era because, of course, the Elizabethans had, the medieval population, had absolutely no idea how it was passed. You know, it, it took them till the beginning of the 20th century to work out that it was passed by lice and fleas. Before that, they thought it was passed along the beams of your eyes. That's what the Elizabethan thought. So they would never let a healthy person stand where a sick person could look at you because they thought that's how it was transmitted or they thought it was caused by sin or they thought it was, you know, they had no idea and they had no defences against it at all. All they, all they had was, you know, a toad or an onion or, you know, and the devastation that it wreaked is evidenced if you just walk through a graveyard anywhere in Europe, you can see it's a, so it's horrifying what they had to put up with, you know, and how terrified they must have been all the time, particularly in the summer when it was hot. Um, so, and then everybody knew what would happen, you know, your house, if you had a plague case in your house, there would be a watchman stationed outside your door for 40 days and often they closed down complete towns and, you know, it, it was terrifying with, with very good reason. Yes, you, you, and you capture how terrifying it is. It's very convincing in the book. Um, so here's another question off of, from our audience. Can you offer any context on the befuddling second best bed detail <laughs> that is all many people know of Agnes from the historical record? Yes, now this is of course a very, um, a detail much beloved of Agnes's or Anne's detractors. But what they never mention are two things, actually, um, is that it is an interlineation, which means that it's squeezed in between two other lines in his will. Um, and the will itself is a very dry document. You know, a lot of people have said, oh, it's so significant. He doesn't show his wife any affection in his will. But actually, he doesn't show anyone any affection in his will. You would never think that this document is written by the man who wrote probably the greatest lines about love in all its many forms. I mean, to be, to be fair to him, he was dying, you know, probably of typhoid, which is a particularly unpleasant death. But he, he, he has a number of behests, but they're all very brief. He leaves his clothes to his sister's husband. He leaves a bowl to Judith. Um, but what, what her detractors never say, actually, is that by law at the time, Jacobean law at the time, as his wife, she was entitled to a third of his estate and also to live and stay in the house until she died. 
And this was not inconsiderable at all, because at this point he was the equivalent of a multi-millionaire. You know, he was incredibly good businessman, as well as being an actor and, and not a bad playwright. So he made a vast, a vast amount of money. Um, and if anyone ever gets the chance to go to Stratford to see the houses, please do. That was the other thing I should have mentioned in my research. I did go to Stratford to see all the houses. They are incredible. If anyone who's even slightly interested in Shakespeare should go, it's the most astonishing experience. So basically, that he uh, he bought an absolute mansion of a house uh, a year after Hamlet died for his wife and daughters to live in. Um, I mean, it's, it's enormous. It's not there anymore, unfortunately, but um, you can see the site of it and the amount of land. So he was incredibly wealthy. So she was entitled to a third of his estate, and she could stay on in the mansion. So the idea that she was, which is often perpetrated by the attractors, that she was this um, unloved wife thrown out on the side of a pavement with just a bed to her name is nonsense. And also the most significant thing is that the, the second best bed would have been their marriage bed. The, the best bed in uh, Elizabethan times was kept in the parlor downstairs in the kind of best room for visitors. So it was their marriage bed that he left her. Um, so yes, that, that, was, that was it. There's a fantastic sonnet written by a poet called Caroline Duffy, which is called Mrs. Shakespeare. And she very beautifully and much more adroitly than me uh, deals with that myth. So if anyone wants to look that up, they should. So I have a um, question. Do you have any advice for writers that you share? I'm sure you're asked this all the time. <laughs> I don't know if I, I think what I would say is don't, don't overthink it and don't worry too much and don't worry about beginnings. Just get the words down on paper. Don't reread and go back and reread your work and critique it for quite a long time until you've got about 15,000 words. If you're going to write a novel, that is obviously. Um, I think there's such there's so much there's so much comfort to be had in word count and even just a nice thick stack of pages even if you end up cutting 80% of it which I often do it's you know, there's always going to be something good in it but just get the words down on paper don't think I can't start because I haven't got everything I haven't done all my research just start anyway just just launch out and do it mm. and then just get as many words as you can and then go back and look at it. This is exactly what I say to my novelists. <laughs> oh, good. We're in agreement then. <laughs> just right. Just stack up those pages. Just get the pages and then worry about the rest of it later. Yeah. So this is a very writerly question, but somebody has asked it. If you could talk briefly, we're down to our last few minutes, um, really last few minutes, but uh, about your choice of present tense. Yeah, I mean, it's funny, I always think those kind of decisions I usually leave up to the kind of unconscious instinctive part of my brain. You know, I think with any piece of writing, there's always a lot of things, a lot of decisions that you have to make, you have to think carefully about them and very consciously go through the pros and cons. But certainly with things like tense and whether you're using first person, third person, first person plural, whatever it is, in a sense, I always leave that up to the, the other part of my brain, the brain that doesn't think you've got to see what feels right which I know, I know this is very helpful but you know it's funny I was writing a book recently and I kept thinking I must write it in the past tense I must write it in the past tense and I kept veering off and doing it in another tense and I thought you know after a while I just thought I have to go with this because this is this is what the book is telling me you've got to listen to the book sometimes sometimes you've got to listen to yourself sometimes you've got to listen to the book and your characters and if they want to be in the present tense you've got to let them I was thinking this, I was thinking it's an ear question. It's a sound question mm. because yeah. the, the sound of the prose is driving so much of the opening of this book. And then, and then of course the entire book, you know, and I, it had to have been the sound of present tense that you heard when, yeah. the, when the language was coming to you. But did you say just now that you did try it in other tenses or? Not this one that? actually, but other books I have had that experience where I will have, and suddenly it's often when I'm looking back at a manuscript, I think, hang on a second, I've just changed tense in this paragraph ah. <laughs> or I've changed personal. And sometimes you have to, you have to listen to it. Yeah, I mean, I suppose it's, yeah, I think we're just saying the same thing. You're saying here and I'm saying, the unconscious part of my brain or instinct or something but it's I think it's the same thing I never used to be one of those writers who read things aloud I didn't do that I wrote a children's book um a couple of years ago and I did read that aloud to myself and I thought god this is really interesting because you listen to it and you hear it mm. so I have actually started doing that I did read aloud my 400 page novel <laughs> I did go I lost my voice but it was useful yes well I can't even believe I've come to the end of our time together, but I knew that it would go too quickly. 
I want to thank you for penciling us into your busy spring. Thank you for coming back to us. And it's been such a pleasure to spend this time with you. Oh, well, thank you so much. It was lovely. It was really nice to meet you. I hope you get to meet in person one day. Yes, me too. And it's just a gift for me. Have a great day, everyone. And thank you again for joining us. That wraps up our Ramsey County Library event with Maggie O'Farrell. Make sure to catch our next Club Book podcast with Brendan Slocum. Brendan Slocum is a classically trained violinist and accomplished music educator. His much anticipated debut novel, The Violin Conspiracy, takes place against a backdrop the author knows well, the fiercely competitive world of professional classical musicians. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. Stay up to date with all of our events at our Club Book Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free Club Book events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make Club Book possible, including Melsa, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include MinPost and Red Balloon Bookshop, where you can purchase all the books featured in Club Book. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.